where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hello, and welcome back to The Messy Intersection. I'm your host, Diana, and I am a registered dietitian specializing in pediatric and family health, a certified intuitive eating counselor, and a mom of two. You can find me online at Anti-Diet Kids, and I have a great episode for you today. And what I am most excited for you to hear is my guest Meredith's perspective, not only on feeding kids, but on what it is like to navigate all this information on feeding kids, uh, particularly as a person who is not a dietitian or an expert in intuitive eating. As you have probably noticed, most of my past guests have been anti-diet dietitians themselves. Um, that is the professional bubble that I live in. Um, and I do think that that's really valuable. Uh, we have a lot to say, anti-diet dietitians. But I also want to make space on this show for the voices of people who are not subject matter experts about feeding kids or ditching diet culture. And my guest Meredith is the perfect person for this role because she literally wrote a book on what it is like to be navigating all of this information. I do want to add that perhaps if this is your first episode of the show, it might seem a little weird to hear us talking about things like um, you can pursue health regardless of your body size, weight loss isn't necessary for health and can even do more harm than good. Meredith and I don't actually dig into the details of these concepts in the episode beyond what it's been like for her to work on shifting her thinking around those ideas. So if those concepts are brand new to you as a listener, I'm going to put some Ditching Diet Culture 101 type resources in today's show notes for you to explore, um, just so you're not left high and dry on what this is all about. So my guest today is Meredith Redman. Meredith is a pediatric ICU nurse who traded in her stethoscope for a full-time mom gig, and she is the author of Dear Jesus, Send Coffee, which explores how to find joy in the chaos of everyday parenting. She is also my neighbor, as you will hear us talk about, which is super fun. As you know, the content on this show is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice, and the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear from Meredith. Hey, Meredith. Welcome to The Messy Intersection. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for having me and me having you over at my house. How fun is this? I know. Yeah, I wanted to share uh, with our guests that this is actually a first for me. Meredith and I are recording this in person together uh, locally. I usually record my podcasts over a platform that's pretty similar to Zoom. But Meredith is actually my next door neighbor, basically. One, we're one house apart. And I am over at her house at her kitchen table. We've got some red wine that we're drinking. And it's going to be a fun episode, I think, because it's a different vibe than Zoom. I mean, you've done plenty of Zooms, but it's a different vibe. So Meredith, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Diana. I'm Meredith Redmond to start off. I am a mom of two. I stay home currently, but I used to be a pediatric ICU nurse, was my pre-mom job, as I like to call it. And I am a author of a book called Dear Jesus, Send Coffee, Finding Joy in the Chaos of Early Motherhood that was published at the end of 2021. So right in the middle of the pandemic. And I interviewed Diana for my book. So this is so fun to get to talk to her about it. And I'm enjoying it. 
Yeah, I was very honored to be interviewed for your book. But I also just think it's cool. Certainly, we're going to talk about how our approaches to eating and feeding kids are a little bit similar. But you and I live in Edmond, Oklahoma, right? Neither one of us is a native, right? Mm -hmm. But so I've just really appreciated, especially in the past uh, couple years with the uh, stress of the pandemic and how it takes a toll on the women caregivers. <laughs> and I've just really appreciated that we're like two little dots, you know, living in the same neighborhood. Our kids are practically the same age, which has been cool. So thanks for being my next door neighbor, basically. I should thank you because I think I moved in before you. So, <laughs> but, you know, thanks to life in general, we didn't get to talk as much until recently. And it's been really Great to get to know you and find like-minded friends is always one of the hardest challenges of motherhood, as anyone with young kids can attest, that finding your community is both the most important and probably one of the most challenging, you know, minus tantrums, parts you have to deal with of having small children. I uh, completely agree with that. And that kind of ties into the subject of your book, right? So do you want to tell us a little bit more about what is your book about and even like the backstory of what inspired you to write it? I know you were writing it during the pandemic. I know you were doing that. (laughs) So tell us more about that. Well, as a mom who decided to leave her career outside of the home after having children, I felt always like I was missing something, something that was just mine. And during the pandemic, my husband is an emergency medicine physician. So he's like on the front lines, has been since day one of COVID. So I really wanted both to support him and to just have something that was mine. The two don't sound like they're congruent, but they actually are. I feel like me being less like on top of my worry was actually a help to him to have something to distract myself. And I've always felt like the hardest part of motherhood for me was this expectations versus reality of motherhood. So you all hear how it's going to be sunshine and rainbows and no one talks about the hard, difficult parts. And I just think it's so important to be relatable and honest and make every mother feel like there's a place for her. So what I'm thinking of, because you and I are recording this basically in the middle of a snowstorm. Fortunately, I only live one house away from you and I put on my snow boots and I trekked over here. But you have a scene in the book where your kids are home from a snow day. And what particularly stands out to me is um, basically wanting to give your kids this picture perfect day, which involves, you know, the cooking experience and the food that they're going to have. And we get that idea from somewhere. I don't know if you have thoughts on where do we get that idea from? And then the reality of what that what that day was like for you. Can you tell us about that? Sure. It was one of those, the snowstorm that we're currently in was kind of a blessing in that we knew it was coming versus this one was a surprise snow day. And if anybody out there is like me and doesn't like changes in routine, snow days are not ideal mm-hmm. for moms like us. And so I was like, I hate this, but I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to be that Pinterest mom for the day. We made a really, really tragic gingerbread house along with pancakes. It was you know, a very high sugar day, which is a great um, days like that. It's what you need. And my memory of how it was going was that it was a disaster all day. My kids were fighting. I could never make it happy. I could never make it great. But their memory when I was putting them to bed was that I tried really hard and it was fun. And then we got to do fun things all day, which are out of our routine. So it sounds a little sappy, but <laughs> actually wraps up to be pretty nice. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we we could probably talk all evening about, you know, this pressure that we get, whether it's from Pinterest or probably these days Instagram. Mostly Instagram, yeah. <laughs> Mostly Instagram. And, you know, of the mom who's doing it all. And we forget that, you know, 
that's not what, first of all, like, our kids blessedly like don't know about Instagram, like not our, our age kids. No. So they're not holding us up to that standard. And I think this comes in with, with feeding as well, with the rainbow bento boxes or the kid who eats sushi or whatever. Our kids don't have that information, uh, but they do have the day to day relationship that we're, we're having with them. So I thought that that was pretty, pretty cool that you, uh, we're able to look back on that particular day. And I was thinking about it in particular because we're we're honestly like eight or ten inches deep in snow right right now. So Which as any of you who live in the southern half of the United States know that, that any sort of snow below the Mason Dixon line is like catastrophe. I'm sure in Chicago they would still be just trudging through and going to work. But here we're, you know, at the side of a flurry yeah. ready <laughs> to yeah. put on hazmat suits or whatever. So yeah. So this theme of expectations of motherhood is basically what the book's about. But can you tell us a little bit more? I know you break it down into feeding and sleep and a few other key components. What did you explore in the book? And, you know, I know there was like some research that you based it on. So tell us about that. So the initial section is um, based on common insecurities that I found to be prevalent across the board when I interviewed moms, how we feed our kids, how they sleep, how we choose to parent even starting off how we get pregnant and birth our children. We have pressures right from the beginning, whether they're coming from ourselves or coming from society about how we expect parenting to go. And when it doesn't go that way, we blame ourselves. And then the second section explores maybe why this is the case. Why do we have these social media pressures like we were talking about? Why do we have these personality traits like this perfectionism and all this 1980s kids who grew up (laughs) coloring our Lisa Franks just perfectly, you know, these things come out in our parenting. And then how in the end, because that sounds very heavy when you start to talk about all the negatives of this, but how do we escape this and find the joy again? And I'm not great at this. And part of this was a therapeutic process for myself of trying to figure out how do I enjoy each day when I feel like I'm not doing enough at points in time. So going into how do you get out of it, you do. You do what Diana and I are doing right now, maybe without a microphone, but you sit here and you cultivate friendships with people that you enjoy. You find community groups that you can be a part of. You find a personal passion that sets your heart on fire. And for me, that's why I wrote the book is I needed something. And that felt like a mission to me of if I can make one mama feel less alone by knowing that you are insecure because it's part of the world. It's part of being a mom. It's not because you're not doing enough. That was my mission in all of this. Yeah, I love that. You know, but it doesn't have to be your professional endeavor that is like your your thing that you're passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this expresses itself as a stay-at-home mom in particular? Well, I think each one of us has a set of gifts that it may take us a while to discover, but motherhood is really good about putting you on the spot for things. And if you think about what it was that you tend to gravitate towards in one aspect or like what was it whether you wanted to do when you were a little girl? What was it that came up to you that you always had a passion for? I love telling stories, which may have meant that I wasn't always honest. (laughs) Telling little fibs because I thought it was interesting. So to me, and that and observing people. So I think observing the world and how it worked was always interesting to me. And that's why I started to notice things, these patterns in motherhood, these patterns in life. And I wanted to explore, was this just my experience or was this experience of lots of women? And through that, I came across a lot of professional research that supported this theory that becoming a mom is hard. It wasn't just my friends were saying it 
when we, you know, be honest and sit with our toddlers who were throwing fits in a restaurant the one time we tried to go out to lunch, you know, how that goes. I came across some incredible work by a psychiatrist named Alexander Sachs, and she has just this beautiful theory. Becoming a mother mimics the transition of adolescence, and she named it matrescence. Her work is actually based on a previous scholar, but she does it in such a different way that it's easy to understand. And the transitions of hormones and role development that you feel as a teenager when you just don't feel like you're fitting in, they occur exactly in motherhood too. There's such a change that occurs for women after they've birthed, adopted, however they've acquired their sweet babies, occurs for them in terms of role change and feeling differently in their bodies change and things like that, that does mimic adolescence. Yeah, I I feel like I had heard of that concept here and there, but the way you outlined it in the book really gave me a better concept of that. And what it made me think of is, I know that you're kind of, the the psychiatrist compares it to um, adolescence, probably around like the age, like 13 mark. But I remember when I used to go to new mom groups, when my oldest was an infant, we were all like, does this remind anybody of college? Because we're all wearing pajama pants. And like, instead of like, where are you from? What's your major? It's like, boy or girl, C-section or vaginal, you know, stay at home or go back to work. And it's like, you're, you're finding your way, you're finding your, your people. And I don't know, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And I don't think either one of us are necessarily subject matter experts. Um, but so you do break it down, you know, whether the birth experience, early feeding with breast versus bottle, sleep, but I'm here to talk about feeding, <laughs> child feeding. So um, tell us a little bit about that chapter and what you uh, discovered in researching that. Well, I had a fantastic primary interview for that chapter, (laughs) as you know, being my subject. Um, Feeding was something that was particularly worrisome to me. Um, I have a history of having an eating disorder and like everything, because that's my personality type. I thought that if you just did it right, if you did it a certain way along certain lines, that everything would just be easy and work out. Oh, I just want to smack my sweet, (laughs) precious little self and go, honey, that is just not how it goes. These are individual humans that come Mm. to be under your wing and you have to just flow with it at points. And for those of us who don't flow well, it's kind of a hard thing to do. Yeah. I remember when you interviewed me prior to, you know, actually writing the chapter and publishing the book, we did it via Zoom because it was like early COVID and, you know, especially with your husband being an emergency room physician. And I don't think either one of us wanted to take any risks. And it was just at the time we're like 20 feet apart. (laughs) It's the right thing to do at the time. <laughs> um, so that that was fun. But, you know, what made it into the chapter? I know you talk a little bit about the prevalence of picky eating and, you know, this desire that moms have not to have a picky eater. What did you discover there? I discovered that it really doesn't matter what you do. Sometimes you get a picky eater no matter yes. what. And... <laughs> It really doesn't matter Mm. if you decide that you want to be a breastfeeding mom. Sometimes Mm. it doesn't work. It really doesn't matter. These children have minds of their own. (laughs) And it is our job to support whatever works for them, not force them into the preconceived notion that we had of what kind of eater they would be. And that is a hard thing for people who are trying really hard to make sure that their kids don't suffer the same pain with food that they may have. Mm. But respecting that they have differences with it is really our job and understanding that, that sometimes we need to take a step back rather than forward to help our kids with food might be one of the greatest lessons that I've learned 
over being a mom. <laughs> Not every day am I perfect at this, but it does happen. Okay, tell me more about that because I, uh, you know, I certainly had the experience of like, if you do this, this, and this in pregnancy, then maybe you'll have an easier birth. We know that that's not <laughs> how it works out. If you do this, this, and this, if you just try hard enough with breastfeeding or whatever it is, you know, you won't have to use evil, terrible formula. I'm doing the quote marks because it's definitely not true. But what were some of the messages that maybe prior to actually doing the research for the chapter, you were getting, especially coming out of your own eating disorder? Because I talk about this all the time. I want kids to avoid eating disorders too. But is Instagram the right place to get that information? I don't know. <laughs> what were you picking up on? Well, I think Instagram is not generally the right place to get that information unless you're following certain very positive accounts. Um, but it is, it's a challenge. And I will say that I, Diana has really helped open my eyes to a lot of the anti-diet culture with her Facebook group, with her podcast. And it's making me explore how I might be pushing things that are even in my subconscious. Even if it's working against how I consciously want to raise my children, I have these intrinsic notions of life might be harder if you don't eat well. Life might mm -hmm. be different if you have a different body size. But i that's not how I want to raise my kids, mm -hmm. but it's still there in the background. So exploring that and knowing maybe I, I think vegetables are good for you. I really want you to love them. I really want you to do this. And Instagram will say – you know, if you put it on in a little cupcake holder with all sorts of decorations on it, that your children will all of a sudden love kale and they'll ask for it for breakfast and they'll see that you're the best mom ever and they'll spell that out in kale and all these wonderful things. And none of that is true. And if it is true, they're lying or they're lying to make it sound like they're a better parent than you. Most parents are liars on Instagram. That's about where I am. <laughs> yeah. I want to be like, I want to be like, yes. I'm like, oh crap, I'm a parent on Instagram. <laughs> So am I. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it is – I think that this conversation is coming to light even in, like, the last um, couple of months more so about is Instagram – and we could say – I don't know. I'm not on TikTok. But, like, there, there is, I don't want to single out Instagram. But, you know, are we portraying a picture – a picture-perfect version of feeding kids on Instagram that, you know, eager parents are gobbling up? the same way that we are for like lifestyle content or birthing and breastfeeding content, that kind of stuff. What messages do you pick up? Well, I have to catch myself a lot of the time because I do think, I mean, is it like a form of kid gaslighting when you try and make them believe that they really want something that they don't want? And it is challenging because <laughs> I do. I, again, I have to step back. I'm reading several books on like your conscious desires versus your subconscious mm. desires. And I consciously want my kids to have a healthy relationship with food. But somewhere back there in things that I maybe not have fully dealt with, I do want to be that perfect mom. And I do have that horrible desire and thought that like if I can have these kids who behave a certain way, then that validates mm -hmm. me. If they eat well, then that makes me look like a good mother. And that should not play any part in this. Our kids should eat because we have to eat to live and they should enjoy what they're eating, not to make me feel or look good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, I mean, this is the approach that I use with my pediatric feeding clients is that most parents will come in saying he doesn't eat this. He doesn't eat that. Like, how do we get him to eat that? And honestly, in my early work, I was all about that. Like, yeah, do division of responsibility. This is how we basically get kids to eat. And as I've been learning more about responsive feeding, which I've talked about on the show, which I honestly, I think even when you interviewed me, I was not as... Books take a while. So we've learned <laughs> yeah. a lot since then. 
<laughs> yeah. When you interviewed me, I didn't know nearly as much about responsive feeding as I do now. But the uh, whole concept is unlocking the child's intrinsic desire to eat. And it's exactly what you just said, like that the child would eat to perform for us. I think we can all kind of recognize that we don't we don't want that. But we you don't want your kids to get an eating disorder, you know, like, um, and, you know, if somebody tells you, here's a way to go about it, I, I think we're all kind of a prime audience for that. And now I'm thinking about, I mean, I talk about eating disorders all the time. So, but yeah, it is, it's very individual to the kid and to the family and responding to your kid in particular. And I think we can all agree that the kale has just got to go, right? Like, <laughs> I know. I mean, it's okay in that one salad with the cranberries and the nuts. I really like that. Yeah, and like, the goat cheese. Yeah, you got to add the goat cheese or it's just not even worth it. Now, that said, um, I know you've told me in the past that your kids are not especially picky eaters. How does feeding work in your family? I would love to say that I manage it in a very holistic, beautiful way all of the time. But I think some of it is my kids just happen to be good eaters. They don't sleep, so you know. <laughs> We got to have a balance somewhere. And I thought I parent the same way I feel like because I'm not creative enough to come up with a new way for each topic. I mean, for sleep, we were fairly routine. For eating, we're fairly routine. But one stuck, the other didn't. And it really is out of my control. I offer things and they do what they're going to do. Yeah, and I think that, that that just is further evidence that we can follow all the best practices for whatever, but our kids are still individuals <laughs> and they're going to have their own unique facets of their personality. And for some kids, that's, you know, um, liking a more limited amount of food. And for some kids, that's coming into mom's room every night at three in the morning, which is something that I deal with. <laughs> But there was another thing in your chapter about feeding kids that really stood out to me. And you said that every mom's group you go to, people are simultaneously asking, how do I get my kid to eat better and how do I lose weight? And you thought it was uh, an interesting juxtaposition there. What else have you learned about that? Well, I was that mom. Like I thought that I could prevent eating issues like I dealt with by perfecting this way of handling food with my oldest, which my kids are 18 months apart. I clearly learned quickly that that wasn't going to work after <laughs> by my second. But I did that. I sat there thinking, I don't like my postpartum body. As I'm literally have a baby tucked on my boob or feeding a bottle, <laughs> you know, saying, how do I fix myself? And I know there were older toddlers there. Kids are smart. They heard these things. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we were portraying a message. And I'm sure I still, even though I try to work against it, portray messages to my kids subconsciously that I'm not happy at points with how I look physically. But if you've ever had eating issues, you know that you want nothing more than to have your kids not struggle with that. But that said, I don't, I'm not the ultimate determiner of that. And I could do everything quote unquote right. And my kids might still have issues with eating and it's, it's part of parenting. <laughs> yeah, that's turning into a running theme on this show in particular with the eating disorder prevention. I mean, I would love to hand you a manual and here is how you prevent it. But there are a lot of factors. And, you know, what I'm able to talk about on the show is, yeah, not talking about your own body dissatisfaction, not talking about dieting or good foods, bad foods, um, not pushing your kids to eat a certain pattern. But it's like everything, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you mentioned your your own disordered eating. Can you share your story? I can. So my, I'm primarily dealt with bulimia, which is, I feel like 
portrayed in the media as like the non-sexy eating disorder. <laughs> I know that sounds bad, but everybody was like, oh, wouldn't you love to have this anorexic body? Thankfully, we've moved away from the early 1990s of the skeletal thin. But I think we've now crossed over into being super fit is our new mm-hmm. and healthy eating is our new eating disorder of choice these days. I was a very competitive dancer and I think that that actually helped me, which doesn't sound like a typical story, helped me stay away from the eating disorder habit before because I couldn't perform mm. if I didn't mm-hmm. eat. Um, always have been a highly anxious person and started right before I was going to college. Just this this transition. Transitions are hard for a lot of highly anxious people. Going to college seemed like a really big transition for me. Even though I wanted to go far away, I did. And I did end up going across the country to college, struggled more there, but eventually learned that my mom couldn't tell me that she wanted me to be better. My dad couldn't tell me he wanted me to be better. Neither of my siblings. I had to decide for myself that this is something that I wanted to work towards healing on. And I will not say I've been perfect. Body changes of pregnancy and just life changes have made it, the pandemic definitely made it hard. It's something that comes up in times of stress for me. But coming out the other side of it, for the most part, I know that I may still struggle again. I really feel like it's something that you know, in each of our struggles, we learned that we have the ability to relate to others. And there are so many people that when I've been open with them about struggling with eating have told me about their side of it and how it's something that's very private still. Even though we live in the society is obsessed with being thin, everyone wants to believe that you're just naturally that way. Mm-hmm. Not that you have this deep, dark secret about how you get that way or stay that way. And it's just something that needs more attention of if you have to push that hard. I mean, we see it in celebrities all the time. If you are supposed to work out three times a day, your body's not supposed to be that size. Mm. If you have to count every gram of whatever that goes into your body, your body's not supposed to be that size. We need to respect what nature has given us. And as hard as that is at points, (laughs) love that part of ourselves. Yeah. And you know what you're, it, what you're sharing here, it reminds me of how we need to be more open about miscarriage and mental health struggles. And, you know, women are suffering on all of these things. And, you know, both of the miscarriage and mental health struggles, just to name two, are hugely common, as are eating disorders. There's at least um, one statistic that says at least 70% of women struggle with disordered eating. Now, that might not be a full-blown anorexia or bulimia, but, you know, 70% is the majority of people that you know, the majority of moms sitting in your mom group that you know. And here we are all pretending that either we just, you know, eat right and exercise and this magically happens of, you know, the the perfect um, probably Instagram body. <laughs> I'm sure it's filtered anyway. But. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Or uh, the platform self-selects for people who already have that body type because of the thin ideal. You may not make it as an influencer with a certain type. And that's, the, I mean, that's what social media yeah. does apparently. And, yeah. and you know, I know whenever this topic comes up, and it seems to be coming up with me more and more lately, we talk about... And yet it is also a platform for connection. And yeah, you got to take it with a grain of salt. I even talked to my clients about this. Like if we're going to spend time on Instagram and a lot of times part of the work that I'm doing with clients is actually to unfollow some of those accounts that are making you feel bad and intentionally follow accounts that are going to diversify your feed. But then we talk about maybe not flipping open your phone in line at the grocery store because you don't know what you're inviting into your space. 
in that moment, but instead be like, okay, I've got 30 minutes. I'm going to follow some of those health at every size accounts and like see what I learn and and sort of unpack in that space. But I think that's another issue with social media is that we invite it into our lives at just random moments. We could be waiting for our kid to come out of the bathroom and like suddenly we saw somebody picture perfect and now we're in a spiral. And that's weird. I don't think our moms dealt with that. (laughs) Yeah, we just, we have different pressures. We have different privilege also that we have access to this information. And I'm sure that motherhood was isolating in a different way before you had that kind of connection. But maybe it was better because it was more organic. I don't know. I mean, this is, this is my only time at this gig, so I don't really know what it's like. But I even have thought about how, Diana, I may have interviewed you differently now that I've learned so much more about health at every size and I'm exploring my own. I try to think of myself as a very inclusive person. You know me fairly well that mm-hmm. I am across most spectrums, I would think. But I still, I struggle with the body mm-hmm. inclusivity, not to be you know kind or inclusive of other people, but the health versus weight thing and thinking about how do I parent that, that mm-hmm. concept. You've said to me that, you know, what if your child is in a larger body? What does that matter? Does mm-hmm. it matter? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. But do I really feel that way? And mm-hmm. how do I overcome it when I'm not on the fence, but just struggling with that concept personally versus parenting wise? Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about. You're one of the first people I've had on the show that's not a dietitian. You are a health professional, you're a registered nurse, but not a dietitian and certainly not someone who knows the ins and outs of health at every size and weight inclusive practice. The thing is though, like, and I I talk about this all the time, none of us grew up with this. (laughs) It's it's almost like the final frontier, you know, I don't know about you, but I was raised with fairly progressive ideas about if you want to get married, it doesn't matter if you marry a boy or a girl or, you know, things like that. But this did not enter the conversation that your your weight does not indicate your health. And even if it did, like, that's okay. But that is not a concept that we grew up with. And it is something we want to instill in our kids. But we are at the crossroads, the intersection, you might say, of... <laughs> figuring this out. So I, I always appreciate, I don't know if you know this, but like, so our kids go to the same school and we we wait at the same grassy area for them to, to walk out of the school um, so we can take them home. And, you know, if I've happened to post something on Instagram that day, Meredith will say like, oh, your post like really got me thinking about this. And I find that really valuable because I want to hear how, how is it landing for, for a lay person? So I was wondering if you could share just what it feels like to be learning, and I, I am not the be-all and all the weight-inclusive content in the least. So, like, where are you at with this stuff? I will say certain posts I will read on it, and I'll go, yes, I'm already doing well at that. And I, you know, <laughs> give myself a gold star for that. And other ones, I'm like, well, that's not where I am. And I want to read that stuff and say, you know, okay, good. This is This is content for me to grow. And I'll be honest, at points... It is like that. And other points I'm going, well, it's another thing that I struggle Mm -hmm. with as a mom. And so what's helpful, though, is when you actually get to have a conversation with somebody about it. Your content is great and it's usually easy to understand. But I'm talking just globally about not just yours, but just in general, the health at every size Mm -hmm. movement and that kind of thing. 
I mean, I can just be honest. I, I am a nurse, and this was not what we were taught in nursing school. Right. It's my husband's a doctor. It is not what he was taught in yeah. med school that you can be healthy and be in a larger body. Well, to be clear, it is not what I was taught in dietitian school either. <laughs> and you know, I kind of honestly, if if I had to pin it down, I would probably say, drum roll, please, Instagram is where probably five or more years ago I started consuming more of this content and shaping my approach to nutrition. I do think there are definitely a handful of dietetics programs that are embracing the health at every size model. I don't want to speak for medical programs, but I hope there I hope there's at least like one. <laughs> but yeah, it's tough. And you know, I try to refer locally to weight inclusive doctors and you know, I've I've got my list of two, <laughs> you know, in, in in all of Oklahoma that I know of. But if you're out there and you're listening, hey, let me know. because um, I would love to refer to you. But this is actually a theme that came up in the Facebook group just this week, I think, is that it's not just how to talk to kids about food. It's how to talk to kids about bodies, how to talk to kids about anger, how to talk to kids about their siblings, how to talk to kids about educational achievement. And on the one hand, we want to do right by our kids. But on the other hand, it can feel like, oh my God, am I doing anything right? You know, because every thing that I have an instinct to say is apparently wrong. So do you have thoughts on that? I think a lot of it just depends on the headspace that I'm in personally. If I'm having a harder day with myself, body image wise, maybe mm-hmm. it's not the best day to decide to explore my whole method of how I parent around food. <laughs> so yeah. kind of understanding where you are, not that you shouldn't explore this content, but just learning that you have a bandwidth for learning new things. If you're having a really hard day with your toddler in terms of behavior, maybe you don't read all this stuff about how maybe you don't listen to Unruffled and how you're not supposed to have a positive parenting podcast. I yeah. do like that one, but yeah. um, just that you don't listen to how we should never, you know, have emotional outbursts with our kids when you've just yelled at your child, mm-hmm. which I'm sure none of you ever do because it's the worst <laughs> thing you could ever do. I did it twice today at least on a snow day, but it gives yeah. us a chance to apologize. So there's yeah. always a silver lining yeah. here to make repairs when we make mistakes. And I think that that is probably the biggest lesson with these parenting explorations of the am I doing anything right is we probably aren't doing something's right, but that's okay. And our kids need to see that we are imperfect people who can then make repairs when we do wrong. So I'm sure I will say mm-hmm. things. I'm sure I will do things that will harm my children, but at least I hope I try and fix it <laughs> at some point. Uh, I'm trying to remember, did this come up in the book at all? Yeah, a little bit. In, in my chapter on parenting styles... It's so interesting that so many of us are in this movement now that we want to parent so differently from the 80s and 90s when a lot of us, I assume a lot of your listeners mm-hmm. were raised in the 80s and 90s, that it was very authoritative, um, authoritarian, sorry, not authoritative, yeah. authoritarian. <laughs> and, you know, I'm the boss, here are the rules, you listen to me. And now we want to be so positive And my personal therapist, love therapy, I hope you all go at some point, has said to me, we now are parenting in this, you know, 2020s way, but we still want perfect behavior from our kids out of the model. So how do we deal with that line of, I'm going to be gentle with you and I'm going to honor your emotions, which is the right way to parent, in my opinion. But then when you don't listen to me, am I still supposed to be okay with that? Same with feeding, for example. You know, I'm going to do this division of responsibility, but how do I handle my feelings Mm -hmm. when you decide you don't want anything that I cooked? How do you handle that? And your response to that might be more important 
than almost anything else mm-hmm. that you show your child because they're mimicking us. Yeah. Well, speaking of division of responsibility, I'm thinking of a couple of weeks ago, I shared what was a very influential article to me about how perhaps division of responsibility is not the be all and end all of feeding kids. And I think that it was in my Facebook group that you wrote a comment and you were like, well, I am just trying to wrap my head around this. Like, what are you trying to say here? Do you remember that? And like, how, how has that impacted you? The article talked about how, like, as you said, division of responsibility may not be the be all and end all. And like you said, I was just like, okay, here's how I feed my kids. But maybe that's not right either. So what do we do? Every time we come across new research, as Maya Angelou says, you know better, you do better. Mm-hmm. But we're always knowing better. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of pressure to always do mm-hmm. better. If my dentist says my kids can't have X, Y, and Z because it's bad for their teeth, but then I'm supposed to have these foods presented, but not in a pressuring way, but then I'm supposed to make it cute because that's what Instagram influencers do. How do I make a non-cavity, super cute, healthy, non-pressured meal three times a day? I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) And I don't want to play a role in pressuring that you you should, you know? You don't. No. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm learning here too. There's, there's definitely, I mean, this came up in my interview with Amy Severson. For as long as up until six months ago, all I knew was the Ellen Satter Division of Responsibility Method. But I also knew that I was adapting it with my own kids of like, ah, eh, you want a cheese stick and it's not snack time. Ah, it's no skin off of my back or something like that. I feel like I have this idea that, okay, so... I just should let you eat what you want when you want because that's the way to keep your relationship with food healthy. It's the fuck it diet for kids. <laughs> like, just get what you want. Enjoy yeah. those fruit snacks with your tablet, maybe watching YouTube. Yeah. Fine. I'm the fun mom. And then I'm like, oh, well, no, that's maybe not right. So let's reel it back in and let's, okay, have snack time. Is it 10 and 3.30? But then you're hungry at 3 or 9.30 and that's fine, sort of. But now I'm doing this wrong and just... How do you, and my kids are like, what is going on with you that one day I can have fruit snacks, you know, with mm-hmm. my tablet and the next day you're like, today we're making a kale salad as a family. Yeah. Why a kale again? Poor yeah. kale. Always gets trashed. Um, but they're probably looking at me like, what is wrong with you today? <laughs> but I feel like that's just a testament of what the pressures are that are external is we're any parent that is trying that hard, I feel like is intrinsically a good parent mm. or you wouldn't be trying. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're not going to mess up at points in time, but it's hard to navigate yeah. <laughs> all yeah. these rules. Yeah. And well, so what's coming to mind for me, which may turn into another theme on this show is just like with dieting, we look toward where the guidance is. And it's not just for feeding. I know that, you know, at least like toddler behavior, there's sort of uh, this set of like, well, when your kid says this, your response should be that. And we're feeling like we need to learn, just like we were just talking about, we need to learn the right approach, right? But at least I'll just stay in my lane of of feeding kids because I do not know all that much about toddler anger management. But the thing with feeding kids it's kind of emerging is that if we're seeking rules is that is that right (laughs) or are we just looking to replicate what diets provided for us and then this is what my past guest uh, Amy Severson outlined in her book how to raise an intuitive eater is that it, it really all comes back to the parents intuitive eating voice 
and you know in different you might make this different decisions in different moments and yet that sucks because if you don't feel like you have a strong intuitive eating voice what are you left to do do you have feelings on that I have a lot of feelings on that hopefully I can verbalize them in some way that makes somewhat sense I didn't know what intuitive eating was mm. until I started doing research for my book mm. I had no idea what I mean I could have surmised the concept based on understanding what those two words mean. But it was not a concept that I grew up with and not a concept I was even very comfortable with, especially when I started learning about it. I remember that I learned about it and the principles of it from you in the coffee shop. (laughs) And I was sitting there going, well, this is good. I chose this pastry particularly to eat because I felt like this was okay for me to eat at this point during. And I'm going, well, I already have messed up today, which is just a testament to my personality, not to the concept of intuitive eating. But I am learning more about it and I am embracing the topic, but it's when you come across something that's so just the antithesis of how you were raised or Mm -hmm. how you thought about things and not how I was raised. And so just the culture in general Mm -hmm. is what it's the opposite of. It's just kind of a shock to the system. Mm -hmm. And well, I know in particular it sucks as someone who who did have an active eating disorder and you're still navigating what making food decisions is like on any given day for you right now. And it, it goes back into that insanity of new motherhood is that it could be, first of all, there's this misconception that intuitive eating is the right way to eat. It is a helpful way to eat for a lot of people. It is not necessarily accessible. You have to be food secure. It uh, works best with neurotypicals, apparently. You know, so there's, there's a lot of things we could put on that list. It is not appropriate for active eating disorders. So there's a lot of things we could put on that list, and it's um, not really fair to elevate it as the best way for any individual human to eat. But I think we can say that it has been a helpful way for a lot of people to eat. And if you have this um, quote unquote intuitive eating voice uh, of your own, and it's a strong voice, it takes some of this pressure out of making the right decision about feeding your kids. Mm-hmm. But you've got to freaking go do, a, do the work to cultivate your voice. <laughs> do you feel like uh, that's something that you're, you're able to work on or you, you're currently working on? I am... My kids eat better than I did. So I feel like at this point, my main job is to stay out of their way rather than try and figure out whatever method du jour Mm -hmm. is popular and elevated as the best way to eat and just say, okay, generally when I try and fix something, I end up breaking it. So (laughs) if it's already going, okay. So I just need to step back is what I'm learning from my kids they eat differently. I mean, they're two different individuals, but for the most part, they do eat fairly. I mean, if you look across as you should with kids, not at one particular meal, but across the spectrum of time, they eat fairly well. I mean, they're typical kids. You, I buy bananas and they all get eaten in a day. And the next day I buy bananas and everyone hates bananas. I mean, I'm not acting like I have kids who eat perfectly, quote unquote. I'm doing their quotes too. Um, But yeah, maybe that's just the biggest thing that I should take from intuitive eating is maybe they already know. Yeah. And part of it is my job is to stand down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing better than you think. And I do think you raise an excellent point of like, perhaps we should not overthink this. Perhaps if things are going well or going good enough, 
something's going right and let's just <laughs> leave it alone. But it is helpful that we have this framework and the, the child feeding framework when things do go wrong to, to kind of fall back on. Um, so <laughs> on that note, is there anything else uh, about the book that you want to share? I just hope that you know, when you're reading parenting books, as most of us do at points, and you feel like a particular methodology doesn't fit with who you are as a person, that you just put it down mm-hmm. and you find something else. If you want to do more research on a subject matter, find something else. And that was the main reason why I wanted to write my own experience. Not because I thought that I did things well, particularly, mm-hmm. but because I thought the voice of a mom who was saying, I'm getting all of these this different input and none of it is quite resonating. I feel like I have to pick pieces from different texts, different influences in my life. I still feel like I'm doing it wrong most Mm. of the time. I want other moms to understand that that's okay and that's normal. Mm. And so you know what's right. You know what feels good. I mean, I I will say that I think there are certain things that are safety measures that we should probably consider. But outside of that, I mean, I'm kind of a you do you minus, you know, my few quirks. important, but part of that is being a pediatric ICU nurse at heart. So we all have our things. I'm sure that Diana, you know, feels more strongly about food and I feel more strongly about certain health things. And that's just part of our backgrounds and understanding that we all bring that to the table when we parent and mostly just breathing. And coffee. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a, a great note to end on. Definitely. And it goes back to that, you know, when we feel like we're getting advice to do talk this way and that way and that way it's like but what feels right to me right and I, and I, I would add if you're really not sure what feels right to you perhaps a professional can help you explore that yes <laughs> okay so the book is dear jesus send coffee i will put links to it in today's show notes and where can we find you online meredith you can find me on instagram which is kind of ironic at this point <laughs> Motherhood by Meredith is my handle. I have a Facebook group and then blog and website also by the same name, motherhoodbymeredith.com. And then my book is available at all major retailers. Love that. And I will put links to all those things. Thank you so much for joining me today, Meredith. Thank you for trekking the two houses in the snow. And now we're going to sign off and drink wine. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. You know, I wanted to add a thought Meredith and I talked about how forging friendships with other parents who are in a similar stage of parenting as you and share your values is really important in new parenthood, but that is also one of the hardest things to do in new parenthood. And I think if I had been listening to an episode like this at any time in my second daughter's first year of life, I would have been pretty pissed off, actually. Um, At that time in my life, we had just relocated across the country for my husband's job, and I had two little kids, one of whom was an infant. And my whole social support network was across the country in New York, where we'd moved from. And I was probably pretty desperate for a neighbor to go drink wine or coffee with and, you know, just dish about life and parenting and how hard it all is. And I didn't have that at the time. So if you're in that position right now, I see you. And I want you to know that you deserve these relationships in your life. And, you know, if they have to happen over Zoom because your good friends live far away or whatever else it takes, you deserve to carve out time for that. And if your circumstances are such that it's just not in the cards for you at all at the time being, I see that too. And you get to acknowledge that this is something that's missing. 
I wish I could do more for you personally. Um, what I can do is offer up the Raising Anti-Diet Kids Facebook group. If you are interested in anti-diet parenting, you will certainly find some people who share your values in there. And I am planning to get a location thread going so that perhaps you can make a local connection as well. So the link to that is in today's show notes. And while you're in your podcast player, if you would be so kind as to leave a rating or review for the show, I would so appreciate that. I always love reading those and it definitely helps other people to find the show and connect with each other in the Facebook group. So thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, embrace the mess.